Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, today with a special Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. After all, corona means halo, so let's find a silver lining in this outbreak. On Dr. Doctor, we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. We're normally heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. This episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. For today's episode, which is recorded on the evening of March 16th, our guest is Dr. Greg Burke. Greg is a practicing internist in Danville, Pennsylvania, where he is the chief patient experience officer at Geisinger Medical Center. He's the medical director of a nursing home and a rehabilitation hospital. He's a medical ethicist and also has time for family life with a wonderful wife and children. Greg, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, good to be here with you uh, online when we are uh, socially isolated, but not intellectually isolated. So, Greg, uh, in what you're doing, uh, what sources do you go to to trust for your information on coronavirus? Well, that's a great question. And I think having credibility uh, sources in a, in a crisis is probably key. So I go to the basics like everybody else can, to the CDC, the Department of Health in our state. But I've also been looking a lot to our own uh, hospital and health system leadership. Uh, I've worked with a number of the leaders here and I have great trust in their discernment of the sources that they receive. Uh, and I'm also assuming they have great access to uh, clinical and uh, other um, content experts within our system, including infectious disease, epidemiology, emergency medicine, so on. So in fact, uh, before our call today, Tom, I, I was involved in an emergency uh, call, so to speak, an urgent call uh, with our medicine leadership team and received a, you know, a up to the minute update on what our system is doing, what, what we know as a, as a state and as a country. So I, I find those sources to be the most credible. And do you find that the other people you're working with uh, are truly concerned about the patients involved? They're taking what we would consider a good Christian Catholic approach to treating patients? Sure. I think that's a great way of looking at it. I think, you know, like in, in any crisis, there's also a little bit of self-preservation and safety. So I think there's an appropriate concern on our staff, on our clinicians. You know, how do I weather through this particular, you know, infectious disease? What are my risks? But I've also seen a lot of, you know, duty to care, courage. I got to go and do my job. Uh, that's what I, that's what I'm here for. So I, you know, I've not seen uh, folks abandoning the post so to speak. So that's been a very uh, refreshing thing to see. I think we're very early in this process and we've not had a f our first case at our, at our uh, academic center, uh, but it's getting close. And so I've been so far very pleased with how I've seen the reaction of my colleagues and other healthcare professionals. I was pleased to say that in uh, this afternoon's uh, announcement from the White House and the CDC, uh, they were talking about the importance of all healthcare providers uh, continuing in their jobs, uh, about how important it is for us and our, our colleagues to continue working. It, it kind of makes you feel good at a time like this, doesn't it? Sure. It kind of reminds you again of why you went into uh, to healthcare. That's not to say one isn't a bit anxious, concerned. I would be lying to you, Tom, if I didn't say it's crossed my mind. What if I was infected? How severe would it be? Uh, what effect would it have on my family? But you know, I'm absolutely determined to, to show up and do the work that I've been called to do. 
Compared to one or two weeks ago, Greg, how has your professional life changed because of this pandemic? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question, Tom. I think in, in some ways it's, it's put things in a, in a, in a, in a greater uh, focus uh, perspective in terms of what really matters, including healthcare. As you look at, you know, I looked at the last week or two and saw a number of uh, meetings, non-essential meetings canceled. Sort of surprised me how many meetings are actually non-essential. <laughs> and yes. uh, I really started to wonder what really is essential. Uh, I Good could tell time. you that my comfort zone today was actually spending some time with my patients in the office. But I was wondering, well, what will be uh, the circumstance a week from now? What will I see my uh, higher risk patients? Will it be safe for them to come to the hospital as, as of now that they're still set to come? So there was some uncertainty, but I can tell you that it was that that was when it's like it's like um, you should say riding a bike. When I would sit down with a patient and talk about their health issues today, that was a comfort zone. But also recognizing that uh, they have a lot of fears too, and and we have to be aware of things. I I, I was aware of a um, a colleague of mine who was working up a patient for uh, a viral infectious illness today that may have had some risk factors and. Again, that that sends a little bit of anxiety through your system. Um, uh, not surprising. More of that. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned to me when yeah. we spoke earlier today that simple things have become far more difficult to accomplish. Sure, I, I'll give you a couple of examples. At the nursing home that I work at, which is a very fine Catholic institution, uh, we made that decision to close to all visitors last week. Uh, it was the first time I've discharged patients simply on the reason that their family could not visit them. They found that so um, upsetting or intolerable or so necessary, I would say, that the family would visit that they actually requested to be released from the facility. Wow. So I found that sort of interesting. Uh, this was whether there'll be a trend around the country of, of patients who are in these facilities where the families actually step up and say, mom can't survive without a visit. We're going to bring her home. I never Very thought of that. So, uh, but so, these are people who normally have to stay there for nursing care, isn't it? Or are these people right. in assisted living? Well, they, no, these were people in the nursing home. One was was uh, wow. in skilled care, was getting active therapy and medical management. Uh, and when she found out that her husband could not come every day and visit, she said, I want to go home. And wow. then shortly thereafter, another patient, I met the family at the doorway as they were locking the doors to the facility and saying no more visitors, uh, were waiting outside to get their mother uh, delivered to their car and, and take her home. Do you anticipate that she will stay in the home or that when this lifts that they, patients might return to the facility? I, I think that, that's a great question, Tom. I don't know. I think some will not come back if they can uh, you know, accommodate and, and uh, manage at home. I think maybe they'll, they'll stay. I, or, you know, hopefully they'll be able to manage, you know, the levels of care that they'll need are, are hopefully available through uh, visiting nurses and other uh, other entities. But such an emotional, uh, I, I didn't think of it that way, such an emotional shock to some patients and families to say that you were going to separate you or quarantine you from family interaction. That's what impressed me. Do you think that we're going too far with uh, the nursing home isolation? You know, you know, the initial reaction is you think, is this really necessary? But as I think about it, it truly is our most vulnerable class of patients. These are the folks that are at highest risk of an infection breaks out. And we know that from the experience in the Seattle area. So I think it's extremely prudent. 
Uh, I don't think it's over caution. I think it's probably where we need to be. I, I went into round and do an admission at that facility yesterday and very um, openly agreed to have my temperature checked and to play by the rules of, you know, entry into the facility. Uh, I actually, for the first time, signed a death certificate of one of those patients outside of the facility, standing outside my car. Wow. Uh, just to avoid going in, you know, and having to go through the process. Some of that's efficiency, but trying to reduce any exposure of these highly vulnerable patients to, to the outside world right now. And when we say highly vulnerable, right now, from what I can read, the fatality rate for patients over 80 who contract the virus is about one in six, or about 16%. Is that what you're seeing? That's the same numbers I've seen, Tom, yes. Uh, so really, the people that we're protecting the most are the most elderly and the most ill, which kind of warms my heart in light of a society where many people accept the principles of assisted suicide or euthanasia. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. And, you know, uh, you know, putting on my, my hat and my interest in ethics, you know, in our recent Catholic Medical Association Ethics Committee, we were talking about what were some of the non-negotiables about this Ooh, crisis good point. in utilitarian ethics. And one of them was, one of the principles was we're, we should never uh, allow or condone in any way euthanasia or assisted suicide in face of a, an infectious disease like this. That that's something that as a Christian, as a Catholic, I would say as any physician, we should reject that as an answer to the crisis. Uh, so, you know, you're right. How, I am pleased to see that we're concerned about the vulnerable. Um, it's sort of a healthy uh, reaction uh, to, you know, the age of ageism and um, yes. seeing, seeing the elderly as, as, as burdensome uh, that, that, you know, they really do require a special amount of, of protection. Uh, it's almost like the preferential option for the poor. This is a preferential ah, option for the vulnerable. The medical yes. Oh, I love that. Uh, and uh, how that plays out. Remember that the, our older folks in that, and these facilities often also have the most comorbidities. That's why they're the super high risk folks. They're the folks with diabetes, COPD, heart failure, advanced dementia, frail and, debility. And regardless of age, those are the patients at higher risk for dying of coronavirus. Absolutely. So we are in a lockdown. We, you know, we even check the temperatures, I believe, of the staff that are coming to work just to screen them for infectious disease. What's your um, upper limit? Well, I think we're using 100.3 at our facility. Okay. I've heard of similar numbers. Yes. Um, we're now, and this is putting some stress on our nursing staff, we're now separating our residents during meals. So they're, they're going in shifts. Ah, uh, so they can be at least six or 10 feet apart as they eat. Ten feet. Do you have any idea what the basis for the six feet is? Is it because a sneeze doesn't travel that far? That's what I've heard. I've heard it. Um, with the SARS, the SARS outbreak, if you remember from some years ago, when they looked at those, yeah, they looked at um, air flight and they found that it was really the two seats in front and the two seats in back of uh, somebody ah. on the flight that created the greatest risk of developing infection. So that was a general rule. I'm sure they have measured how far droplets can go uh, uh, with a sneeze or a cough. I've heard as much as 10 feet, but a reasonable number that we're having is that that six feet apart so but it's putting some stress on the nurses tom because they are now having to you know assist a lot of folks 
um, and spend a good part of their time helping to feed our, 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 our oh, residents. Yes. Um, you know, over maybe what would have been an hour event is now a two hour event because they're doing it in shifts. So they are, are working their tails off. Yes. <clears throat> Greg, in each episode, we typically have a medical trivia question. So I'm going to pose the question now. We'll answer it at the end, see if you know the answer. Uh, this is a shorter question. Uh, this virus, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, and, and the disease COVID-19 started in China back in November. But what was the second country on January 13th to diagnose a case of COVID-19? So we'll get back to that toward the end just to get our mm -hmm. listeners thinking about the spread of this that's now made it, sadly, around the globe to every continent except Antarctica. Greg, you're also the medical director for a rehabilitation hospital. What does that mean and how has it affected care there? Well, that's another uh, uh, challenging uh, population, as you can imagine, folks who are you know, recovering from acute injuries, whether it's a stroke, trauma. They have a lot of comorbidities. They're in a transition zone where you're hoping they're going to get home. So how do we, you know, how do we approach visitation? And visitation in this population is very important. The encouragement from family, uh, from outside stimuli, you know, as you're recovering from a major either neurologic event, traumatic event, is so critically important. And what resources do we have in such a facility uh, to upgrade, you know, prevention, isolation, uh, often we might not have negative pressure rooms or, or some of the, you know, the things that might be available on the acute side. So we were talking about the, that today. If we, one of the questions we'll be asking is how do we cooperate among these different levels of care to get people in the right place at the same time recognizing that transfer to another facility increases their infection risk and stress on their staff. So I think there's got to be a lot of communication and dialogue between facilities and institutions in this kind of a setting. Greg, you're also the chief patient experience officer for Geisinger officer. What does that mean, and how is it related to the COVID pandemic? Well, it's going it, to. I'm still exploring that in my own mind. Uh, right now, it seems to take a bit of a backseat because the things I often work on are uh, hospitality, physician communication. Uh, certain standards of, of care in that direction, although that's fundamental to all of this in some ways. I think we're still in a triage phase, though. We're just trying to get the medical facts uh, correct and make sure the quality and safety is delivered. But through all of that, we also have to, to do with a high level of compassion and empathy and consistency within how, how we treat each other. So that challenge is, in patient experience is not going to go away, but I think Right now, the whole health system is in a triage mode, trying to just make sure we get the patients safe and appropriately diagnosed. But I, at some point, I've thought about how our patient experience goals and strategies are going to become more important than ever. And Greg, we keep hearing a lot about stopping elective surgical procedures, presumably because there are respirators that can be used in those operating rooms in case we need more intensive care unit beds. What is the approach of Geisinger uh, Medical Center regarding that? Well, that's an interesting question, Tom. I can tell you, they, our facility, our health systems talk to other surrounding health systems. As of this moment tonight, we nothing has been canceled. Elective surgeries continue to go forward. I think they're being evaluated on a day-by-day -day basis, particularly patients who are high risk or might come from a nursing home, for instance, for an elective procedure. I think that's all being looked at very closely. And you're right, 
we want to make sure we have enough resources available uh, as the number of cases increases. So ICU beds, but at regular hospital beds, emergency room uh, capabilities and access are going to be critical. So at some point as the number of cases increase, I think you'll see, I think we'll see elective cases canceled uh, if the need arises for, for, for beds and, and resources. But right now you're going to go ahead with scheduled surgical procedures until you see that need closer right. on the horizon. Exactly. <clears throat> that makes sense to me too. Uh, are there any other surprising experiences you've had in your life as a physician because of this rolling pandemic? It's one thing that's impressed me, Tom, is how critical it is to work in teams. Uh, any thought that, you know, any physician or clinical leader or administrator can understand and manage a crisis this big would be foolishness. Uh, I am realizing my total dependency on my clinical leadership, my infectious disease colleagues, nursing colleagues, administrators, governmental agencies. Um, we all truly have to work together to get it right. And I work with a group of highly intelligent, motivated people but nobody can handle this alone. And I think we just have to find our niche. You know, for me, I'm finding my niche is going to be perhaps in the post-acute world where I have the most impact and with the, the, the patients that I take care of personally. And most uh, of what my- What does that mean, Greg, the post-acute yeah. world? So that's going to be nursing homes, rehab hospitals, uh, potentially those even in home care. Uh, uh. I used to do hospital work. So I'm going to trust others, you know, if my patients are admitted to ICU hospital, that those experts and colleagues will take care of them. They're going to look to me if there's a patient in one of my nursing home facilities that I work with through our, you know, we have an advanced practitioner program and a number of facilities that I work, I do some directorship with that we do do well in that entity. So we have to find where our, our responsibilities and particular knowledge bases and apply it in that area. Uh, but as a team, where I'm very dependent, as I'm realizing, on others to to really guide me uh, and get through this, but also that I'm willing to step up and do what role I've been asked to do and not drop the ball. Staying in your lane, so to speak, which we, we all yeah. need to, to do well. You're the co-chair of the Catholic Medical Association Ethics Committee. What are some of the other ethical questions you think we need to consider as this pandemic evolves? That's a great question. Uh, we did meet as a committee just several days ago. It was probably one of the most animated and robust discussions we've had. Wow. I think uh, one of the top issues is resource allocation and social justice and fairness. I think our, our committee agreed on some of those first principles, some of the first principles I alluded to, for instance, no euthanasia, not acceptable. Yes. We talked about uh, the area of justice and, and that as we re, you know give allocate allocate resources that that um, variables such as as gender race ethnic origin creed uh, the ability to pay economic status sort of the social determinants would not be used as factors in making determinations on care i think we were fairly comfortable as a group using physiologic data survivability data you know basically looking at organs and uh, the response rates to therapy. Uh, in some ways, I, I think that helps the physician who is in an awful position of sometimes deciding where to put their most aggressive care uh, components. So this allocation of resources reminded me of something I learned when I was an army physician and that on the battlefield, uh, sometimes you only have so many resources and you have to 
stratify patients based on whether you expect them to live or not. Is that something that could potentially happen in a pandemic? Oh, absolutely. And I think as you know, I think it's something we would rely upon. I think as physicians, we need objective standards to make some of these decisions. Uh, you know, people often joke about doctors having this, you know, the decide who lives and who dies. But this is a situation where, in fact, we may be called upon to make difficult uh, decisions on resources. And we, I think using data on survival, on success rates, uh, not necessarily on age per se, but on these other factors, I think is going to be the way forward. It's, I wish we didn't have to think that way, but I can really think of no other just way to do it. Greg, I, you've mentioned to me something about the responsibilities of healthcare workers in pandemics, especially something called the duty to care as opposed to heroic virtue. Could you explain that for us? Sure. I think it's a great concept, and I would refer any listeners to um, an article written some years ago by my partner on the committee, uh, Marie Hilliard, from the National Catholic Bioethics Center, who wrote an article on the duty to care. Uh, I think it reiterates sort of what it is to be in, in a profession that has an oath, that you recognize that there are certain inherent risks with, with what you do and that you're willing to take those uh, for the good of those that you serve. Uh, and that could certainly is your patients, but it's, it, it could involve society as a whole. Now, there's a deeper question when that arises. Uh, what are those limits? Are there limits to the duty to care? And there may be. Uh, I'll give you an example. A, a nurse who works in the emergency department but is responsible for four children, and one of the children is severely or significantly ill at home with COVID and needs 24-hour care. And... Uh, what is that particular nurse's, you know, responsibility to her own family versus uh, her duty to show up and work in the emergency room? So working through those issues, I think, uh, are going to be difficult, but we'll make the best decisions we can. We know that in some ways, healthcare workers are, who are willing to take these risks sometimes benefit in some ways uh, from, from that, that devotion to their patients. They may be the first to be vaccinated, for instance or to receive a, a particular protective gear to protect protect from infection. Uh, it reminds me of the when you get on an airplane and they say, you know, first put oxygen on yourself before yes. you put it on, your, yes. on those who are with you. I think in some way healthcare may uh, have to recognize that their frontline people need to have some preference as well, a, a preferential option for the healthcare worker, if you will, uh, <laughs> to vaccines and protective, you know, environmental wear and such so that, that they can stay well enough to continue the service that they're giving. Um, I, I think I, in our discussion with the ethics committee, we talked about virtue and that this would be a virtue to take some risk for the care of another. Uh, I was reminded by uh, a very well-versed Jesuit on our committee that virtue is expected, heroic virtue is not. So everyone has to show up and do their duty one does not necessarily have to take on three shifts in a row or um, do some other heroic uh, act uh, in a very difficult case that puts them at extreme risk. Um, we're all expected to be virtuous. We're not necessarily all expected to be heroically virtuous, if that makes sense. And and, and how do we parse the difference there? That's, I think that's going to be done on a case-by-case -case mm -hmm. basis. Um, 
I think when we see heroism, we know it. Some of it is based on, for instance, the, the particular person's circumstances. And when I think of heroic vir virtue, I think of the, the fireman on 9-11 entering ah, the yes. World Trade Center. That was heroic virtue. And one of my friends on our committee reminded me that many of those were, were young men without families, um, felt called to that duty and willing to take that risk. Is it different if you're a 45-year-old father of five with dependents? Um, now, you would expect to still do your basic duty and virtue, but do you have to be heroic? It's hard to say, Tom. I think um, one will have to you know, look at the circumstances and their own conscience. But I think when heroism occurs, we'll know it. We'll see it and we'll recognize it as heroic. Is there anything else from your ethics committee discussion you want to share with listeners? Uh, you know, as I'm thinking about that, uh, I and I, I haven't maybe articulated this in the past, also for all of us who don't have an infection, who don't work in healthcare, I think we have a Christian duty not to, uh, to spread rumors because that creates greater anxiety in those around us in our community. Uh, we almost have a duty not to panic, if I dare say so. As hard as that may be, I think it's one of the things that we all should try to be aware of. A duty not to panic. I love that. Uh, Greg, right now I want to give the answer to the medical trivia question before our last couple questions for you. Uh, so listeners, the question is, what is the first country after China that saw a case of COVID-19? And that was on January 13th of this year. Greg, do you happen to know the answer to that? I, I'll take a guess. Go ahead. I'm thinking Korea. Uh, Korea so has great data, but it actually is not Korea. Uh, it's in Southeast Asia, and the country is Thailand. Did not know that. Thank you. That'll be my <laughs> trivia question tomorrow <laughs> for my colleagues. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I got this on a, um, oh, a little communique from our county health commissioner, mm -hmm. uh, which was really well done. It was short. But one of the quotes I saw from our county health commissioner in the paper today I thought was was perfect. And that was, by doing all of these seemingly you know, over-the-top social isolation things, hopefully we look back on them and think, wow, that was silly. In other words, there will not be a crazy big outbreak like could happen. We would love it to be like that instead of, wow, I'm glad we were prepared because it was really rough. Yeah, that's uh, something we could all pray for, Tom. Yes. So my last couple questions. Um, there's a lot of people out there still today I'm thinking of this father and daughter who were supposed to self-isolate and quarantine after being exposed to somebody who then ended up going to a father-daughter dance that night. A lot of people think it's really not a big deal. Why are we doing this isolation? What would you say to people who are still thinking that? I think if you if you don't follow the guidelines on, say, self-quarantine, in a sense, it's a failure to love. Uh, we may get overly confident personally that we're not going to infect others, but there's an asymptomatic phase of this disease, and it's it simply would be a failure not to care about your fellow man and woman. I, I just it's an unconscionable for me uh, to take that risk with somebody else's life. Uh, so, whatever social distancing, um, and I was going to say ostracism. Uh, well, I won't go that far, maybe, but, what it, but whatever way we can make society say we frown upon this as strongly as possible, um, I think we need to do uh, for all of our, our good. And, and final question, <clears throat> what else, if anything, would you like to say to listeners about this situation we are living through? 
Well, you know, I'm thinking of a sermon I heard in, in, in my parish church uh, this week, and uh, it doesn't downplay the worry, and I don't think we, we can deny that. We are folks of Christian hope, and even in the short term, whatever time we now find ourselves with in a crazy world that has said we're, you know, we're just too busy to do anything, now finds ourselves facing each other with families and loved ones and spending time together. Um, that may be one of the great benefits of this is that we get through this and look at life in a little different way. Maybe there are a lot of meetings we find that are not essential. <laughs> and, that, and that some essential things like communication, love, and time with family and prayer have become so important. I, I you know, one final thought, it, it struck me today in our diocese here in Pennsylvania, uh, the sacraments are closed. The churches are locked. Oh my no goodness. Mass, no mass, no confession, no ability to even adore the blessed sacrament. And it struck me, um, my wife sent me a text in tears saying she was one of the last persons to leave and, and they were locking the church. She didn't know that was going to happen. And um, my comment to her is maybe we should just pray outside the doors. Uh, I think that is putting all of, all of this in a, in a bigger perspective. Maybe we'll appreciate, you know, um, the great gifts we have of faith if we don't know, if we're deprived of them for a little bit. It's a real true Lent. Dr. Greg Burke, thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor. Listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of us. We are the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. This is Dr. Tom McGovern signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.